Good afternoon. It's Friday the 2nd of February 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have Ben Rubin, Debbie Evans and uh, James Roguski. So uh, we're going to get straight on today, however, with um, some warfare, uh, because apparently, of course, we are preparing for war everywhere. Uh, first of all, Leo Doherty, uh, who is uh, the Armed Forces Minister, is or has been in Poland. Let's have a look at what he had to say. Yeah, we will have a look at what he had to say now. NATO is the most successful defensive alliance in history and has made the one billion people under its umbrella, including the UK, safer and more secure for the last 75 years. Today, I'm in Orzysz in northeast Poland at the headquarters of NATO's multinational battle group. And I'm meeting British troops who are working shoulder to shoulder with the Polish army and NATO allies to defend the security of the eastern flank. The UK has over 400 troops stationed in Poland, including 150 right here. So no doubt Putin is uh, shaking his boots uh, at that. But nonetheless, the question is whether we're going to send aircraft carriers uh, to the uh, Red Sea or not. So here, is, uh, here are two so-called aircraft carriers. And of course, they are now being, there's a frantic effort being made to get them there. So Tony Radigan, the uh, Chief of the General Staff, Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, said he wants to send uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth to the Red Sea. Um, but uh, of course, we don't have any support vessels for that. So completely reliant on uh, the US and others uh, to support that. But we also uh, aren't able to launch any kind of air airborne early warning ships, uh, aircraft from this ship either. So uh, we also need support from the US for that as well. Uh, it turns out that uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, was ready for uh, the NATO exercise that's going on at the moment, that steadfast def defender, which is gonna be running in the Arctic until um, uh, May or so, uh, but it may be redeployed. Uh, the Iranians, though, um, not so excited about this movement towards, or the threat of movement towards uh, uh, the Red Sea. Uh, and to them in particular, uh, and this is the comment from the uh, Iranian ambassador to the United Nations saying that the Islamic Republic would def decisively respond to any attack on the country, its interests and nationals under any pretexts. Um, now, in the meantime, of course, Russia is uh, the main target of the NATO uh, exercises and most of the rhetoric at the moment. Uh, but the Rhetoric with NATO began, or with Russia began, of course, with the South Ossetian War and Georgia. And uh, the uh, president of Georgia at the time was uh, Mikhail uh, Saakashvili. Uh, so apparently he's not doing so well at the moment. Uh, Glenn Deason here uh, tweeting out that uh, President Saakashvili started a war with Russia in 2008 when he attacked South Ossetia and killed Russian peacekeepers. Um, he imprisoned in Georgia. He was transferred today to intensive care as his health declines. Uh, he should be a reminder that Washington and the UK, for that matter, can quickly discard allies. I think that is a fairly fair point. Um, now, uh, the threat of nuclear war, of course, is in the media and uh, the fear mongers uh, keep the rhetoric up. Here is Metro because in the United States, they have decided to publish a map, at least according to the Metro, this is uh, real estate agents have published this map, which reveals the best places to live in the United States if nuclear war 
rear side. So let's just zoom in on the map and you can see the Rocky Mountains, Nebraska, Midwest, California, Mississippi, Banks, Florida, and North Carolina apparently are the best places to be in the event of nuclear war. Uh, the Russians uh, are taking the threat, at least from the West, a little bit more seriously than that, however, uh, particularly the question of whether U.S. nuclear weapons are going to be stationed in the United Kingdom once again. Uh, and Sergei Lavrov had this to say. He said, we've heard such reports that uh, the United States will position nuclear weapons in the U.K. and we're looking into their origin and authenticity. Uh, he said, we consider all the nuclear weapons of these three NATO nations as a single arsenal. Uh, and it's our plans uh, and build our plans for ensuring Russia's security correspondingly. He said the configuration of this arsenal may change, but the essence doesn't. I can assure that we're taking this into account in our planning. Um, the, the thing is that that may well be the case, but nonetheless, uh, most of the uh, war drums that are being beaten by the United States and the UK at the moment are just simply rhetoric. Uh, but one thing that uh, is developing on the European continent is that the Europeans have moved forward with their uh, plans for uh, military mobility. So this is Defence News uh, making the point that Europeans have set up a corridor for rushing NATO troops eastward as if we have enough NATO troops to make any difference. Uh, they are still pushing this idea of PESCO uh, and European Defence Union and the idea of quickly being able to move troops across borders on the European continent without uh, any particular red tape. But uh, as cynical as all this may be, it, the most cynical aspect of this, I think, is ULES, uh, that's London's ultra-low emission zone, uh, and the question of whether we send scrap cars that we have banned uh, to be in the central London under this uh, ultra-low emission zone to Ukraine, because Ukraine is the uh, dumping ground of the world for just about everything. So, and more letters have been being passed between central government and Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London on this. Uh, so let's have a look at this one. Uh, thank you for your letter of 17th of January, uh, says Mark Har Harper, the uh, Secretary of State, uh, saying, uh, I agree Londoners should be able to donate suitable vehicles to Ukraine through your ULES scrappage scheme and encourage you to make the changes to this scheme to make it possible. Now, Ben, I'm going to hijack you here a little bit and welcome you to the programme. Can you believe the level of cynicism in this? I mean, you are a Londoner. You must be proud that your scrap is going to Ukraine in this way. Well, I saw this when they first announced it a few weeks ago. And the first thing that came to my mind was, have they just stolen everyone's car? <laughs> like they've, they've, they've basically introduced a bunch of rules which makes your vehicle obsolete, right? Like you can't drive it around London anymore. And now that they've done that and you've had to buy a, had to buy a very expensive electric vehicle, which will probably not only run for five or ten years, they're now going to take your, your old perfectly good car and give it to Ukraine. I, that's, it's crazy that they've done this. Well, is it? Because they've taken the, the Ministry of Defence's perfectly good tanks and sent them to Ukraine. It's exactly the same policy. We send all our scrap uh, to the war zone uh, so that we can get rid of it. But anyway, let's uh, move on. And Debbie, uh, World Health Organization. World Health Organization, let's catch up on this. So it was an interesting article in The Guardian, which ben. is suggesting that the global pandemic agreement is at risk of falling apart. And uh, it seems that Tedros is blaming fake news, lies and conspiracy theories. So what I would say is it's a jolly good job. We've got wonderful people like James Roguski, 
who has gotten up this morning at five o'clock in the morning at Los Angeles time to talk to us about the latest goings on at The Who. And if you go to his Substack, you'll see um, Enforce Article 55. We also did an interview which went out yesterday with James um, for the latest. So please go and look at that. But I'm really, I'd love to welcome him to, to the program today to give us an update because it seems that we all think the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty and International Health Regulations are all about health or sovereignty, but it seems that there's something there's something more sinister behind it. So welcome, James. Thank you so much for joining us and getting up so well, early in the morning. Please give us the well, latest you. on your findings well, of the WHO. Thank you for having me, and I'll, I'll dive right in because while you know I would love to take credit, the reason why the negotiations are on a very rocky shoal is not because of misinformation, it's because of missing information. And that missing information is that this is really a trade dispute. And the nations are arguing over, quite frankly, money. They're arguing over intellectual property, they're arguing over manufacturing know-how and investment capital, because the purpose of these negotiations is to achieve equity or equitable distribution of quote-unquote pandemic-related products. What's going on here is a pushback against capitalistic colonialism. The nations of the world used to go into smaller countries and you know, tear down their forests or dig up their mountains for iron ore or diamonds or gold. Now what they are mining is genomic information from pathogens with pandemic potential. They want to bring those back to the central hub in Switzerland, turn them into more drugs and jabs, which are probably the most profitable products in the planet because they want to get nations to just print money or go into debt to pay to build out the infrastructure of the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex in the relatively poor nations of the world. You have to ask yourself, should they be spending tens of billions of dollars to build more Wuhan institutes of virology all around the world, or should they be focusing on heart disease and stroke and cancer and diabetes and sudden death and tuberculosis and malaria? No, those things are not nearly as profitable as fear-mongering people to demand that their government spend trillions of dollars to pay the pharmaceutical industry for products that they hold no liability for the you know, damage and death that they cause. What we're dealing with here is capitalistic colonialism and the pushback against it from people who want more poison and more biological weapons to be injected into their own people but they want control of it so that they can profit from it. James, um, everything that you said is just ringing huge alarm bells. And as our audience will know, we have focused on genomic medicine, uh, Genomics England. Um, it's, a, it's a really big agenda uh, over here, particularly in Tony Blair's uh, planning a genomic medicine platform. So everything that you say is making sense. Um, what you've also said, too, is that, um, of course, we've got the World Health Assembly coming up in May. Now, 
they've missed their deadline for to discuss international health regulations. And what you're saying now with regards to trade, you're saying to people, we should now be writing to our foreign secretary, which in the UK's case, of course, is Lord Cameron. And we should be writing to our trade secretary or trade minister, which in the UK happens to be Grant Shapps. What do you foresee happening at the WHO in May at the World Assembly? Well, that depends if you think that they are going to follow their own rules or if they are going to cheat. And I would tend to bet on the second one. They have meetings scheduled for next week, Monday through Friday, of the working group um, for amendments to the international health regulations. There's a rule, Article 55, that says very clearly, and they know it, and they are on video stating that they know that a deadline is a deadline. They're obligated to provide a package of targeted amendments in alignment with Article 55 four months in advance of the May Assembly. Well, the May Assembly starts on May 27th, and obviously January 27th, four months in advance of that, has already passed, and they have not submitted a final package. They intend to negotiate in secret right up to the last minute to drop something on the table in violation of Article 55. Now, in terms of the other document, the quote-unquote pandemic treaty, that is a separate document, a separate set of negotiations, a separate timeline. They've always planned to try to negotiate that right up to the last minute, but that is having great difficulties for the very thing I mentioned earlier. The nations are arguing over intellectual property and manufacturing know-how and investment capital and there recently was a failure in you know, negotiations with TRIPS waivers for intellectual property. And you know, there's a new term that people need to be familiar with, which is piracy. When South Africa and Botswana shared information about Omicron, as they're obligated to do under the international health regulations, they were, I'll just say, dismayed to see Pfizer and Moderna turned that into billions of dollars by incorporating that information into the booster. So when you look at this from a health perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. When you look at it from a pandemic profiteering perspective, it's evil, but it makes all of the sense in the world. And they're having difficulty because everyone is fighting over a piece of a multi-billion dollar, if not trillion dollar pie. James, I want to thank you so much for getting up um, so early to give us this, this urgent update on WHO. And as everybody knows, we'll be keeping in touch with James very regularly. Um, and I'm sure James will probably hopefully be able to catch 40 winks before his day really starts for seriously. Um, and I just want people to know that the UK government did make an announcement, um, the WHO Executive Board the 22nd to the 27th of January. Um, they delivered a, a statement at the WHO's executive board in Geneva. And if you just go further on into that document, you'll see that you can see on the top right there, the UK underlines our commitment to agreement of a new pandemic accord and targeted amendments of the international health regulations, which together ensure our preparedness for future health threats 
with stronger prevention and response whilst respecting national sovereignty. So receiving um, a lot of support there from the UK. And just to finally end this segment, um, just to remind everyone that James is very keen that we um, sign this uh, petition, end the UK's membership of the World Health Organization. Um, when when I looked last, there was 88,128 uh, 88, signatures. We need 100,000. So if we could circulate that as much as possible and get the signatures up, that would be really helpful. So thank you very much again to James for that very valuable segment. Um, Debbie, James, thank you very much. And we should uh, mention that uh, Debbie recorded a much uh, longer interview with James, uh, which uh, was is on the UK Column website, um, if you want to have a look at this in more depth. Um, so thanks again to James for that. Now, Ben, um, let's uh, come to you now. And uh, well, yes, let's have a look at this, this image, which I think is uh, about as telling as it needs to be. <laughs> everybody that's jeremy hunt he's the uk chancellor and people are generally a lot ruder about him than that man with the sign but i'm not going to say the word that they normally use anyway he's been very busy and i want to have a little look at a couple of tweets he's put out this week he's been taking some big meetings with some big people in finance in particular and the first one was this lady shemada wikramani anayaki I'm not going to try that again. I think that was right. She's the CEO of Macquarie Bank, which is a huge Australian investment bank. They're very heavily invested already in UK infrastructure. So they own the M6 toll road. Uh, there was a, a, a lot of discussion about that about, gosh, it's probably 20 years ago now when they invested in building the M6 toll road. Uh, so they're actually actively buying and building big pieces of infrastructure and then essentially leasing them back to us as UK citizens. And Mr. Hunt is talking to uh, Macri about a further 12 billion of investment, 12 billion pounds in 10 areas of sustainable infrastructure, right? So this new sustainable infrastructure, this new economic and technological paradigm that they're talking about building is being funded. And as you know, with the M6 toll road will then ultimately be owned by global corporations like Macri. Right? The British people will basically live in a system of indentured servitude. That's what these people are architecting. That's what they want. That's what they're building. Uh, another example this week, again, I said he's had some big meetings. This one with probably one of the biggest fish in the pond of global finance, Larry Fink, who's the chief executive and the founder of BlackRock. It's one of the world's biggest investment funds. They've already put £500 billion into the UK. Right, So this ultimately is is asset stripping. They're investing in global corporations, but when they're investing in public assets, it's basically asset stripping. Yeah. So foreign ownership of national assets got very little to do with improving the country. It's got very little to do with creating and maintaining value for taxpayers. This is about people like Larry Fink increasing their wealth and their control over the system. And obviously, Hunt is, was very excited to take that meeting. And uh, I think it's probably because he's a philosophical, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's philosophically aligned, shall we say, to Mr. Fink. And actually, let's hear from Larry Fink about his philosophy and what all that money is ultimately going to be used to do. Impacted, and that's not just not recruiting, it is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked 
as Ken is, that we have not seen more opportunities and we're going to have to force change. Oh, okay, that was a bit shorter than I was anticipating. In the full clip, he actually says force change five times. It's a minute-long clip, just over a minute. So every 15 seconds in that little uh, section, he says we've got to force change. We've got to make people do what we want to do by constructing a system that forces them to do what we want them to do. He's talking there about his own internal team. So a lot of this is about DEI and getting different types of faces into the organization, but that also flows through into his investment strategy. And, uh, and, and Hunt is, of course, completely aligned with this, this idea of forcing people to do things. Uh, he was here uh, talking at the World Economic Forum uh, to Albert Buller, the Pfizer CEO, a couple of weeks ago. He said, when we have the next pandemic, we don't want to wait a year until we get the vaccine. If AI can shrink the time it takes to get that vaccine to a month, that is a massive step forward for humanity. So now, no doubt, they'll be attempting to force us into compliance with that vaccine created by AI for the next pandemic, which is imminent, just like they did last time. But I suppose the silver lining in all of this is uh, you lockdown protesters, you won't have to wait a year next time. It'll all be done in a month. So that's a good thing, I suppose, in all of that. Uh, moving on from Jeremy Hunt, still circulating around the top levels of British government uh, and, and talking of forcing, actually, there's a very interesting tweet here from David Halpern. This actually came from the end of last year, but it links into something else that I've seen recently this week. So it's good to make that connection. So Dave, David Halpern, as we've spoken about ad nauseum on the show, is the founder of the Nudge Unit, the Behavioural Insights team. And as I said, just before Christmas, he was hanging around in Cambridge with his mentor, Cass Sunstein. Sunstein, again, who we spoke about actually even just last week, the author of, amongst other things, Conspiracy Theories and Other Dangerous Ideas and Democracy and the Problem of Free Speech, just who you want in the top levels of government. So what were they talking about? They were talking about how to design a choice engine to improve consumer decision-making. So we just heard Larry Fink talking about how he's going to force people to change. That's exactly the same philosophy, the same sentiment that we see right at the top levels of British government. How do we coerce people, trick people into doing what we want them to do? And really importantly, and this is a big emergent theme, how do you do that using technology? All right. So you can see here, Sunstein talking about choice engines and AI, right? One of the most prominent uses of AI is going to be to try and nudge citizens into making the right choices as defined by people like David Halpern, uh, Jeremy Hunt, Larry Fink, Cass Sunstein. How do we see that manifesting? Because, you know, this isn't just sort of nebulous stuff that they talk about on slides at Cambridge University. It actually impacts the front line of, of, of our civilization on a daily basis. And this one example that jumped out of me this week is that Nesta, which owns the Nudge unit, has introduced something called a strategy room. And this is an offer that they make, and they actually offer to co-fund this activity with local councils. And if you go to the Nesta website and watch the little video, it explains that this is a technology-enabled working session where they use an AI system to create a choice architecture that coerces local people into accepting 
net zero policies, right? So as I say, Nestor is seed funding these. They are extremely keen to get net zero technologies out there into the world. And they're going to use any and all means available to them to do so. And I'm going to talk about that a lot more. Again, particularly how it's manifesting at local councils, which is where all of this stuff becomes very real. I'll be getting to that much more next week. Okay, thank you, Ben, for that. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You'd be very much welcome as a member, and that is very much needed. Uh, You could pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Debbie, uh, your blog is published. It is indeed. And, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And uh, go and have a look up maybe a suggestion about the Citizens Army and what we can do to help our young people. And where have all the royals gone? And Monjaro, is that uh, is that some form of mountain range? No, please go and have a look at Monjaro because it will be coming to your pharmacy very soon. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Now, uh, let's go over to Brussels, uh, first of all. And, uh, well, the farmers have been active in Brussels. Um, They were campaigning yesterday, lots of tractors in the centre of Brussels. But uh, Viktor Orban, um, although he didn't succeed in stopping the EU from giving several tens or hundreds of billions to to Ukraine, uh, decided that he didn't want to have dinner with his colleagues there and would prefer to go and shake hands with the farmers instead. Um, nonetheless, uh, as the demonstration moved on, uh, the riot police came out. Uh, people started lighting some fires, I guess, for heat, but the riot police came out and decided to uh, uh, throw tear gas and uh, uh, water cannon at the protesters and so on. Um, and, uh, well, what can we say about that? This typical state response to this type of activity, particularly outside an institution like the European Parliament. Um, Our question on Wednesday with Charles was uh, what's happening in the UK and pretty much no sooner was the uh, news programme finished on Wednesday uh, than someone sent me uh, this uh, piece of video. It's official. UK farming protesting is going to happen. It's only a matter of time and a bit of planning. Many of you will have seen Eden from Lancashire Lamb Boxes has also said the same thing. We are both in contact with the effing farmer. His account is making surprising progress. I'd encourage you all to please keep following in, liking and sharing because that's where all the information on the UK protesting is going to take place. Now, from our point of view, it's important, vital in fact, that the public are on board with this because the last thing we want to do is piss off the public we're trying to work with you guys so please support us and we can help each other in addition to this latest uh, news as well if you're living in mid wales north wales even south wales anywhere in wales west wales there's a meeting that's been coordinated by gareth Wynne jones and a couple of others happening on thursday tomorrow night at 7 30 at welshville livestock center i'd urge all farmers and non-farmers to go it's an open evening to discuss what we're going to do what's the way forward this might be protesting this might be other things um, such as raising awareness but it's vital that we have a voice on this now 
because if we squander this opportunity it may there may not be another chance if you will to do something about it so as we always say we'll be missed when we're gone but by then it'll be too late so please support us guys and keep sharing the message Okay, so that meeting happened uh, last night in Welshpool. Uh, so here's a photograph, uh, reasonably good turnout. Uh, and uh, well, I think the point here is, of course, th these are the guys that are producing our food. And, and uh, if we allow the, the uh, industry to be shut down, um, then of course we are in trouble. This country is already barely food independent. We import uh, roughly half of what we consume. Um, and uh, we are seeing more and more farmland disappearing to rewilding schemes and other re other things, uh, solar panel um, installations and so on. Um, but let's just get uh, a little bit of comment from a couple of the organizers of the event last night. I'd like to give you a very warm welcome here tonight to uh, Washful Market. We're going to be talking about the future of the industry and also the future of rural life um, here in Wales because we feel like the Senedd down in Cardiff is not listening to our issues um, within rural Wales and we want to make a strong point and send a strong message down to Cardiff, enough is enough. I'm here to speak about some of the policies that are going through and in particular the sustainable farming scheme which the Welsh Government's own figures suggest could lead to a loss of around 5,000 jobs and a massive, massive drop in food production in Wales, as well as a huge, huge reduction in farm incomes, which are already very, very low. I'm here tonight because I think the future of the rural family farm is in jeopardy. Uh, as a family alone, um, between us, we have four family farms, five my two sons, my brother's son and my nephew are farming and the five of them don't actually think there's a future for them no more. And it's our responsibility to look after them like my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather and I hope to God that I'm not the one who lets everything go and we lose it all. So, of course, this is policy. The policy is uh, to reduce the vastly reduce the amount of farming that's going on. Last year, we had legislation uh, going through the UK Parliament, which passed uh, to allow for effectively genetic uh, manipulation of organisms to per perhaps uh, allow them to be produced inside more factory based uh, installations rather than family farms. Um, ben, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but but uh, it is increasingly incredible to me that uh, we see policy coming through the UK in the name of net zero, um, which is going to reduce the amount of food that's able to be produced in this country. At the same time, we're seeing population increase through immigration and for other reasons. Um, and uh, I'm not clear exactly how this is going to work in the long term. Well, it sounds like a recipe for disaster, doesn't it? Decrease the food, increase the people. What does that lead to? Well, it's conflict. Maybe that's what they want. Uh, absolutely. That is, I believe, exactly what they want. But the key thing is uh, we will not be producing food in the way that we have been. And a farmland that has been uh, cultivated for uh, generations, uh, hundreds of years, is going to be uh, going back to so-called nature. But of course, it's not going back to nature uh, as nature would have uh, created it. But anyway, 
Uh, let's perhaps this is a good time, Ben, to bring Mussolini on screen. <laughs> let's do it. Yes. Uh, um, we're going to talk about fascism and we're going to talk about the role of the big consulting firms in delivering a fascist state. And I think the, the best thing to do at the outset, and I'm actually going to end on this quote as well, because I think we need to drill this into people's heads, is that fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it is a merger of state and corporate power. Who said that? Benito Mussolini, who was the inventor of fascism. So he's probably the, the right person to define it for us. Um, and we live in a fascist system. Uh, every single area of our society at the moment, you can see examples of the integration of corporate and state power. Uh, the best example of that internationally is at the World Economic Forum. We've spoken about this last week and the week before, and actually pretty much every week we talk about the World Economic Forum in, 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 in some iteration. Uh, we've got a little image here from Davos House. Uh, we spoke last week about um, the two individuals on the left. Uh, that is uh, Samantha Power, who's married to Cass Sunstein. She's also the administrator of USAID and also the Unilever CEO, Heinz Schumacher. Someone in the forum did this little visual, by the way. That's not from the World Economic Forum website or anything. So whoever did that, thank you. I, th I found it quite funny. But today we're going to talk about the lady saying cheese and the lady saying I'm even dodgier than him. And that is Carmine DeCibio who is the global chairman and chief executive of EY, and Janet Troncali, who is the global chair and CEO-elect of EY. So she's going to take the top job a bit later on this year, and she's actually going to be the first woman to lead one of the big four firms. Everyone's really excited about that. Who are the big four firms? Well, they're these companies, Deloitte, EY, PwC, KPMG, the big four global audit and management consulting firms. So they're auditors. They actually audit the accounts and the financial statements of all of the big global corporations. And they also provide advisory services on everything from strategy to people to technology, big change programs, whatever it might be, tax efficiency, all that kind of stuff. Everything that makes up the global corporation they advise on, they are strategic partners to the World Economic Forum. So that's the top level of partnership. There's only a hundred of those out of a thousand on the partner program. And EY was one of the lead sponsors of Goals House, which we've spoken about a lot over the past few weeks. That's where that image came from. And they ran a number of their own events there through the week at Davos. But let's hear quickly from Janet and Carmine about the World Economic Forum and their plans for 2024. Generative AI is top of mind here in Davos and the pace of transformation in 24 is going to make 2023 look like an absolute warm up. We're very excited. We have a billion dollar pipeline and it continues to grow. And you know, there's a risk of being left behind if AI is not being built into your strategic agenda. One of the biggest challenges is going to be around reskilling. And that's been a challenge already, but 2024 is going to be a pivotal year. The OECD says that 1.1 billion jobs are going to change going forward. And it's, it's really important that we have the people for the new jobs. Generative AI is going to change the way jobs are done. It's going to eliminate some jobs. It could eliminate as many as 40% of the task-oriented jobs going forward. But it's also going to create new jobs, which our people have to be reskilled for. Our people have to know what they're doing going forward. So reskilling, huge factor this year. Geopolitics tension is up. 
trust is down. More than half of the world's population is going to vote in this year's election cycle, and we need to be really focused on de-risking. That has to be a priority for business this year. Well, one of the challenges certainly is sustainability. And 2024 is a year of businesses showing what they're doing, not just talking about it or telling people what they're doing. Now, how does that happen? One is they actually have to be doing things. They have to be changing their supply chains. They have to be, make sure that they're going towards their commitment. And two is going to be, how are they going to show that? And part of that's going to be disclosures and metrics, which we've done a lot of work with at EY. That's going to be incredibly important. It's also the thing that has to avoid greenwashing. By making sure that businesses are disclosing uh, their metrics around sustainability, that's a way to make sure that investors and the public know what companies are doing. Okay, so, I mean, first thing to say, that was a terrible presentation. You've got your two top people talking about the future of everything, and uh, it was not particularly exciting. They had to put a little soundtrack behind it to get us all G'd up, but uh, delivery was not great. And, and also, Carmine, he's, he's something, reminds me of a, of a Sopranos character, actually. I feel like I'm about to get shaken down for something. But anyway, it's all about generative AI. Um, they're really excited because they're going to make a billion dollars in their sales pipeline. And if you don't do AI, you're going to get left behind and you've got to reskill the workforce. 40% of jobs, apparently, are going to be completely replaced. Uh, and on the sustainability front, this is a really important role that these people are going to be playing on sustainability. Is it's all about disclosure. You've got to tell us what you're doing. We're going to come in and we're going to look under all of the nooks and crannies and make sure that you are actually being sustainable, right? Now, this is a big part of how the WEF strategies around sustainability and AI and all those sorts of things are enforced. It's how they're cascaded down into markets, into the economic system. So that was their market-facing communication that they filmed. But then this week, they've just done their big internal communication. So Carmine shared this on LinkedIn. This went to 400,000 people globally across the EY network. Those are your shock troops for the Great Reset. Yeah, just in this one firm, 400,000 people working across loads of governments internationally, all the big global corporations. That's how the stuff that they want to happen is activated out there in the world. Now, should we trust these people? No. And I'll tell you why we shouldn't trust them. Firstly, because they break their own rules all the time. This was this week in the FT. Top accounting firms admit to breaking their own rules, safeguarding audit independence. That's about avoiding conflict of interest. Yeah. So making sure that there aren't any individuals or even at an institutional level, relationships between firms that are being audited and those individuals who are carrying out the audit. And they've admitted hundreds of violations of those regulations following the introduction of new disclosure rules in the US. Like, Why would we trust these people? We also know that they're heavily linked to common purpose. I spoke to Brian about this at the end of the summer last year. You can go and find this interview on the UK Column website, Ben Rubin dissects the common purpose agenda. I've still got my old big headphones on there. God, I miss those, actually. Uh, anyway, um, they're also very closely linked to the Council for Inclusive capitalism. This is a really, really shady organization. They describe themselves as a global community of business leaders taking action for an economy that works for all. They always say this kind of thing. Mr. DeCibio is on the steering group of this organization. He's one of the top people and he sits alongside Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, who we also spoke about last week, who is the founder of the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. And interestingly, she set it up 
in collaboration with the Pope. Uh, as you can see here in this image, uh, this was taken back in 2017, and it actually looks like there are two popes in this image, a white pope and a black pope. Uh, make of that what you will. Also, Mark Carney's in there, the former governor of the Bank of England, just to the left of Linda Rothschild in the centre. And then also this fella, if we just click on one on the left-hand side, there you go, that's Mark Weinberger. And at the time this picture was taken, back in 2017, he was the global CEO and chairman of EY. So Weinberger was there at the start. Carmine De Sibio is on the steering group now. So I think that we should expect Janet Trancali to join this group when she assumes office later this year. EY are very deeply embedded into the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. And by the way, it's not just the Catholic Church involved in this. Justin Welby hosted an event for this group at Lambeth Palace last year. I don't have time to get into that now, but they're definitely worth having a look at. Also worth noting, they have strong links to the British royal family. And Carmine was very excited to announce that EY received the Terra Carta seal in 2023 for the, the firm's continuous commitment to helping businesses better demonstrate their contributions towards a more sustainable future. So I said the auditors are going to be going around making sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they have been rewarded by Charles, King Charles. Oh, God, I hate saying that, but it's done now. Um, and uh, they're, 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 part of, they're part of this organization as well. Debbie, you've actually talked about Terracotta quite a lot. Well, is this, this is the first time I've actually seen it out, out in the wild like this. What do you make of that? Oh, there's so much to say on Terracotta. And what I will say is watch this space because we're going to be covering um, Terracotta and everything associated with it very closely, but worthwhile saying that um, King Charles is also employing very closely KPMG as well. So, I mean, all of the auditors are involved. This is a case of auditing the world, auditing us. Now, I'll just uh, mention, Debbie and uh, Ben, of course, part of the reason for this is what Mark Carney had said, and Mark Carney was uh, also in that photograph you showed just a moment ago, Ben, uh, and uh, he's very famous, and we've quoted it many times, uh, for saying that anybody that doesn't get involved in the net zero agenda, any organizations, companies, even banks that don't get involved in the net zero agenda, uh, will be going bankrupt. He didn't say how that was going to happen. But of course, accountancy firms and, and auditing firms have got to be right at the center of that. What a remarkable thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I just mentioned The Sopranos a minute ago, but that does really just sound like a threat, doesn't it? Um, this, is a, this is a big old mafia family right at the top running everything. My goodness. Anyway, enough about Carmine. I'm conscious of the cattle prod, and I'm going to blame it on you, Mike, because you jumped in there if I get the cattle prod today. Um, let's talk about Janet quickly. She's the new lady boss. Everyone's super excited. Think of the kindness. Think of the empathy. Think of the trust, the FT. They wrote a big puff piece about her. She's one of their 25 most influential women in business alongside Ursula von der Leyen, who's not actually in business. But hey, what does that matter? And also the CEO of Caring Group, who owns Balenciaga. Quite the company to keep. Anyway, Trancale was very excited about Davos. She posted this week about what a great time she had. A couple of photos here from her timeline. The first and the most exciting thing that she did was hosting an event for powerful women at Satan House. Sorry, Gold's House. 
which we've talked about a lot. And then she also loved hanging around with her Bezzy mates. If we can get them back on screen. Uh, we've got Julie Boland in the middle there laughing away. She's the chair and managing partner for the Americas at EY. Looks over 33 markets, 95,000 employees. And also Julie Teagland, who I'm going to talk a little bit about now, who's the managing partner for EMEA, Europe, Middle East, India, and Africa. 98 markets, 115,000 employees reporting to that lady, also fondly known by me as Obergruppenführer Teagland, because she's German and she's a fascist. How do I know that? Because she tells us that she's a fascist. Yeah, let's have a little look at this video from COP at the end of last year. It's my second day at COP, and I wanted to give you a brief update. Today, it's all been about food security. Such an incredible topic for our most fragile economies. And the thesis that's coming out is that we need to improve food as a business. Looking at it from a very commercial angle, not just humanitarian. That would allow the food sector to be eligible for more financing, for fundamental insurance, and improve transport ways while reducing barriers on tariffs. I think there's a great opportunity here for the public and the private sector to work together on how we can really commercialize, but also make the food sector more efficient. In doing so, we know that that will alleviate some of the pressure on humanitarian aid making overall the money go a little bit longer. I know food security is going to remain a topic on the agenda for a very long time, and as EY builds out our agricultural sector, we're hoping to really contribute to building a better working world. And Ben, just very briefly, I mean, that demonstrates right there the nonsense of what's been going on with the farmers, uh, because what she's talking about is corporatizing uh, what has been traditionally a family enterprise. And, and this is taking farming. And if, if people are already uh, concerned about the, the, the use of, uh, you know, for the, the types of chemicals and so on that we see in the farming industry, this is going to take it a whole step further. Get that woman away from the food, food sector. I don't even want to call it an industry, right? Because that's the language that they use. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's families, it's small holdings. We've got to get back to something that's much more traditional and away from their profit platform. And yeah, they want to get their, 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 um, uh, their, their profit spout into everything. It's, it, it, it's pathological. It's really awful. And it's, it's everywhere, right? And, 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 and this final example that I'll share, again, this is from Julie Teagland. This is right at the epicenter of the swamp. Yeah, so this is a tweet from the end of last year, looking back at 2023 and a, a year of convening the UK public and private sector. Yeah, so they are promoting all of the World Economic Forum agenda items that you'd expect directly into the very top levels of British politics. And they've actually so helpfully listed out the names of the people that have been through there during the year, including Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who we talked about earlier. Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden, Minister for Equality Stuart Andrew, but also Leader of the Opposition Sir Keir Starmer, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, who we've been hearing a lot about over the past few weeks, Shadow Secretary for Business and Industrial Strategy Jonathan Reynolds, even Andy Burnham, Mayor of Greater Manchester, has been getting in on the act. So to summarise, we might go back to the, the slide that I opened with at the beginning, fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it is a merger of state and corporate power. And that is what it looks like in practice in 2024.
Okay, thank you, Ben. And uh, for anybody that wants to know more about the cattle prod comment that was made during that, and Ben probably will be receiving it today, he needs to join us for extra uh, in a little bit later. Uh, so, uh, Debbie, let's uh, move on to you. And uh, kind of related in many ways, uh, India. Yeah, well, you know, the UK wants to be a global superpower for life sciences, but we can't do it on our own. So who are we going to be doing it with? And, and I have to say, this segment is just going to be the tip of the iceberg because this is a, a massive subject. So just briefly, I mean, I, I started to get wind that something was going on in an MHRA board meeting a couple of years ago when Andy Morling, the head of enforcement um, officer, um, was speaking at the MHRA. And what he was saying was that there were many illicit drugs that were coming in from Southeast Asia. Um, but actually, there was a fine balance because they had to keep India um, on side because they were reliant on India for a lot of the pharmaceuticals. So that comment niggled me. Just recently, the World Economic Forum, um, can we always go back to the WEF, um, this was just last week. India could become the world's third largest economy in the next three, uh, five years. But let's look how. So when you go to look at what the World Economic Forum are, are, are putting out, and there's one of their sort of famous wheels there, you can see that um, they're really talking of India as the pharmacy of the world, vaccinating people in developing countries. And many of those um, agendas there you can see are to do with vaccines and organic chemicals. So if we just jump on one from there, Sorry, it's can we? That's it. Um, thank you. Why does the world depend on India's vaccine production? Well, as again, I say there, it's the pharmacy of the world. So, um, this is they want to get India back on track because obviously, with the lockdown, um, it slowed things up. Now, India, let's not forget that India have got 1.4 million people living there, billion, and uh, billion, it's Sorry, billion. I do apologise. Thank you. 1.4 billion. Um, and the corona, coronavirus vaccine, India had a head start in this because they, they worked together with the Serum Institute. Now, this means that 500 glass vials a minute can be filled. That is giving 1.5 million doses for the developing world. And they work very closely with Oxford. And if we go to Business Insider, we can see how much money is involved here. India has 15 pharma billionaires in the top 100, and their net worth is over $85 billion. And let's not forget, you know, um, Rishi Sunak, uh, his wife. Uh, there's a lot of money tied up with pharmaceuticals in India again. And if we look at the Indian pharmaceutical industry, and I'm just showing you this as a, an example, because this was 2021, the future is now. And this is trying to make uh, India the global manufacturing hub to meet global requ requirements. And so this is basically establishing a global hub with India. And you can see there marked in yellow um, who, who is gonna be helping India to do this. All of these countries are working in collaboration. And of course, India is one of the founding members of the BRICS nations as well. Um, so we've seen roadmaps since we left Europe. We've seen roadmaps between the UK government and Israel. 
And we also have uh, a 2030 roadmap for the UK and India, uh, the 2030 vision you can see there, which is basically committed to partnership that delivers for both countries. Um, but this includes a lot of uh, life sciences. Now, this is a big document. So I've just taken a selection of topics here to show you what it includes. So the good old favorites that we've mentioned many times before, um, antimicrobial resistance. And uh, of course there you've got the One Health approach. You've got COVID pandemic preparedness um, and you've got health. So again, there's talk there about working with the Oxford Serum Institute and also the UK zoonotic research twinning project that's going on. Um, if we go on, we can see that it's also involving non-communicable diseases, uh, which this, in, this involves two genomics, precision medicine, cell and gene therapy, smart biosensors. So you're starting to get a feel of where the UK and India are partnering very tightly. And also we can see digital health coming um, through India. They're experts and they have a huge knowledge of digitization. And so the whole digital health scheme, and we'll look at that in a second with regards to Tony Blair, but also yoga will be coming in and they're gonna be exchanging much more, um, many more nurses and doctors with India. Already we're seeing a, a lot of um, Asian workers in our NHS. So um, a big tie up, but I want to go back to, let's go back to small favorites and Ben's already highlighted quite a few, but let's go back to uh, when the Prime Minister David Cameron welcomed Prime Minister Modi at Wembley eight years ago. And of course that is now Lord Cameron. Let's see the rock star welcome that he gave Prime Minister Modi. And now, I'd like to welcome the man you've all been waiting for. They said... Hold on. They, hold on. They said a Chaiwala would never govern the world's largest democracy, but he proved them wrong. He rightly said, he rightly said, Aceh Din Anawali Hay. But with his energy, with his vision, with his ambition, I would go one further and say this Ache din zaro ayega Ladies and gentlemen please join me in welcoming Prime Minister Narendra Modi
So what a welcome. But it's not just David Cameron, actually. Uh, let's look at Tony Blair. And you might remember that we did mention Apollo hospitals where the Protect Britain was going to come in with um, this AI run hospitals. And let's look and see what Tony Blair has to say about India. This technology revolution is central, and it's one of the reasons why India's done so well in these last years. If you want to see an example of a reform that leads to real results and shows that government can work for people, look at India's digital ID program. This technology revolution is central, and it's one of the reasons why India's done so well in these last years. Mm. Because I think, you know, Prime Minister Modi has understood the importance of it, and your digital ID program, I think, I think it's one of the most important programs, I, I keep saying to people around the world, if you want to see an example of a reform that leads to real results and shows that government can work for people, look at India's digital ID program. It's been a remarkable transformation. And, you know, that's where, by the way, if you want to help some of the poorest countries in the world today, I think a lot of the poorest countries in the world, if they embrace technology in the right way with the right help, they, can, they don't have to replicate the legacy systems of developed countries. They can actually, in health, in education, and in the, in the role government plays, they can bypass all of that. So technology, yep, it's, it's got its downsides, but it's a fact, and if we understand it and we master it properly, we can make it work for people. So just a quick reminder on the Apollo hospitals and a nice picture of Tony Blair there. Uh, there's plenty more of that at the Tony Blair Institute, but he's not the only one. Uh, let's just look at uh, Jeremy Hunt very briefly to end this segment on India. Can India live up to China, which is the other big trading partner? Well, I think um, we have had focus on China for a couple of decades now and international investors are now saying hey there's India we've got to look at the opportunity here um, and India is the fastest growing economy in the G20 this year and next year um, it's got this bold ambition to be a developed country by 2047 so I think there's a lot of really amazing things that are going to be happening here India, a country to watch. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, uh, now I just want, I want to uh, bring back on the Online Safety Act that we were talking about on Wednesday's programme. Uh, if you remember, the uh, government had announced that uh, part of the legislation came into force uh, on uh, Wednesday, and that was uh, the issue of uh, false communications. So a person commits the false communications offence if they send a message conveying information that they know to be false, and at the same time of sending it, uh, they intend the message to cause non-trivial psychological or physical harm to a likely audience, i.e. someone who could reasonably be foreseen to encounter the message or its content, and they have no reasonable excuse for sending the message. Uh, the question is, who does this apply to? And if you remember on uh, uh, Wednesday, I was asking, did it apply to this man? Uh, that, of course, is Boris Johnson. And he was certainly pushing out a message a couple of years ago, uh, which uh, people were, were viewing and certainly had uh, psychological harm and in some cases a physical harm as well. And of course, we were uh, aware that uh, he intended to do that because uh, we made the point that Spy B uh, had 
push this out, that the need to use the media to increase the sense of personal threat. So they're clearly going for a psychological effect there. But the next question then is, um, and we didn't cover this on Wednesday, uh, would this organization uh, be in breach of uh, of such uh, uh, the uh, breach of the law in this case because they certainly contributed to the psychological harm uh, that was done during lockdown and so on. Um, and uh, well, in fact, there's an exemption. So let's uh, have a look at that. Uh, an ex Section 180 sets out an exemption for the false communications offence, including an exemption for recognised news publishers uh, and exemptions for holders of broadcast or multiplex licenses and providers of an on-demand programming service. Uh, this section also provides that the offence cannot be committed in connection with the showing of a film made for cinema uh, to members of the public. So uh, we've got to make sure that we understand that if we're pushing out fake news, false information, uh, and we are of the scale of the BBC, no problem there. You get away with that without any difficulties. Uh, but if you're a guy with 10 Twitter followers uh, or ex-followers, as is known these days, uh, you could be in prison for 51 months or so. Um, that's uh, the fairness of the legislation as it stands. Um, there you go. You can take that uh, as as uh, it should be. Now, uh, Debbie, um, a couple of and finalies here. Just tell us about this one. Well, it's a spot the difference. So the first slide that you're going to see is uh, President Biden in his situation room. Now have a quick look, we'll come back to it in a minute, but see if you can spot anything unusual. So let's go to the next slide of another situation room. This time I think we're going to see President Trump in his situation room. So check out the table. Done that. Let's skip on to the next one. There you go. You've got President Obama and you've got his situation room. Check out the table. So has anybody noticed anything yet? Keep going. Let's go back to the President Biden situation room. And what can we notice? Is anybody noticing anything now? Well, yes, because we know the answers, but you better tell you better tell us. <laughs> well, you might like to look at the next oh go on, Ben. <laughs> the, the place names have been put the, the wrong way around when they're for Biden's benefit because he doesn't know anyone is. is. That it. That is it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Right. Okay. That's uh, so. After that is quite funny. Now uh, I just want to leave everybody with one one final piece of news, government news. There's a bill has gone into Parliament. It's a sponsor. It's a private member's bill, so it's not going to achieve anything. But nonetheless, it's worth mentioning anyway. It's been put forward by uh, uh, Tonya uh, Antonazzi, uh, who's uh, from Labour, and the bill is entitled the Police Brackets Declaration Bill. Uh, and the long title is a bill to require police officers and certain employees of police forces to declare a membership of or affiliation to certain types of society and organization to require such declarations to be accompanied by a statement relating to that membership and for connected purposes. I think this is a very worthwhile bill, perhaps even though it is a private member's bill and won't have government support, it probably won't achieve anything. But maybe people might want to write to their MPs and encourage support for that bill. I think that's very worthwhile. We can discuss a little bit more about that in extra in a couple of minutes. Um, so I'm going to say thank you very much to Ben and Debbie and to James Vygotsky for joining us today. Uh, we will be back for some extra shortly if you're a UK column member. Otherwise, we'll see you as usual at 1pm on Monday. Have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.